James here, in this letter that he is writing, is writing to believers. He's writing to born-again Christians. We know this because he identifies for us those he is writing to as brothers. Again, I think you know how I feel about this word. This is not a filler word. This is not just a casual word that's thrown around. It has great meaning. It's a word of endearment, a word of affection that's used to refer to those who are forgiven of sin. Those who have trusted in Jesus for salvation. And because of that, they're adopted into the family of God. James is making a distinction here. And I want to point that out to you in this letter between believers and unbelievers. He's writing to believers. Now, as I say that... That doesn't mean that this, uh, unbelievers dismiss God's Word. James is writing to believers here specifically, but unbelievers hear this Word as well and they're to heed to it. But specifically, the theme and the purpose of writing this letter, he is speaking to believers. And we said at the beginning, when we started our study of the book of James, that the theme of James was something along these lines. Tests for a genuine faith. Tests or testing, ever how you want to do that, test for a genuine faith. He wrote this letter to provide for us tests, as we've seen so far, uh, the test of testing of our faith in response to trials, the testing of our faith in response to temptation. So this whole letter he's writing, he's giving us these practical things, and these practical themes, following on this one big theme of tests for our faith. They are tests for us to go through and to ask ourselves, is my faith genuine? That's what James is doing here. The faith of the believers tested in trials and the faith of the believers tested when he's tempted to sin. And as we've seen, both trials and temptation happen in order to grow us in our faith, to mature us in our faith. And when the tests are over, they also determine the genuineness of a person's faith. That's what's happening here in this letter that James is writing. The test of a believer's faith do what all tests do. If you're like me, I, I didn't mind studying and reading, but when it comes to test time, I was just like, man, I would root canal. Sign me up. Let's forget the test. I'll take a root canal. I just, I just couldn't seem to, everything I'd studied, it just felt like it was going out my ears and I couldn't keep it in there long enough to get it on the exam. But tests, they reveal what's true of the test taker. You teachers use that test to reveal to you what the test taker knows and what's you know being absorbed and what is genuine. In the letter of James, what do these tests prove about the test taker? These tests reveal whether a person's faith is genuine or not. We've all heard the book of James, right? Faith that works, right? We can somebody asks, what's the book of James about? Most of us would go, uh, faith that works. I believe I remember hearing that somewhere in my life. In church, this letter tests our faith to see whether it's genuine or not. Now, in verses 18 through 21, James continues to put forth these tests. Actually, in verses 18 through 27, James puts forth the same test. In verses 19 or 18 through 27, we see faith tested by its response to the Word of God. Faith tested by its response to the Word of God. In other words, faith is proven to be genuine based on how it responds to the Word of God. Now my goal for this week was, notice the key word there, was to preach verses 18 through 27. We're going to deal with verses 18 through 21. And at this point, most of you are breathing a great sigh of relief. 
As I said earlier, the main idea for this section 18 through 27 is this. Faith tested by its response to the Word of God. However, I said we're only going to look at verses 18 through 21. And then next week, verses 22 through 27. So the main idea of faith tested by its response to the Word of God has two parts. 18 through 21. And then next week, 22 through 27. So your theme will be the same next week as it is today. And one more time to make sure I've made this clear. Faith tested by its response to the Word of God. Faith tested by its response to the Word of God. Let's get verse 18. And here's what we see. If you're looking for an outline, here's what we see. The power of the Word. The power of the Word. Verse 18 teaches us what God does through His Word. He gives the gift of new birth. Notice what he says. James says here, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Notice the source of the new birth here. Of his own will, God brought us forth. That phrase brought forth there is a reference to being created, to being produced, or to be born. And the reference is not to our, uh, our first creation or our first birth, that physical birth, but it's talking about our new creation. It's talking about the new birth. And by new birth, I think everyone would understand, but I don't want to insult anyone's intelligence. It's referring to salvation. That's what he's talking about here by being brought forth. It's new birth. Brought forth here in verse 18 is the same word that we saw in verse 15, which reads, gives birth. But notice in verse 15, the giving Birth there is to sin, which results in what? Death. The giving of birth here in verse 18 gives us new birth. It gives us new life. So there's a time when we are born into death, but God takes dead people and He makes them alive. All of us are born in this world, dead in our sins, separated, alienated from God. We're hostile toward God, but God in His own will brings us Fourth, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the air. Did you hear what was true about you if you're a Christian today? What was true about you before you came to Christ? You were dead in your sin. You once walked according to the course of the world. You ever heard somebody say, I just want to do my own thing and be free. I got to do my own thing. But guess what? You're not doing your own thing. You're walking and following everybody else. But you also were following the prince of the power of the air. You were a child of the devil. The spirit is now work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. All those things that Paul says about us resulted in something for us. We were children of wrath. God's wrath and judgment abided upon us. Like the rest of mankind, as it says. But verse 4, in my Bible, those words, but God, have a circle around them. I've read those first three verses, and I'm in despair. I'm thinking, what in the world? Where's my hope? Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when... We were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Verse 5 says, even when we were dead. Notice it there. Not when we got ourselves cleaned up, 
When we got ourselves presentable, did God come and make us alive? But when we were dead, walking according to the course of the world, following Satan, God's wrath abiding upon us, Christ died to make us alive. Because of God's grace, dead people can be brought forth. They can be born again. They can have new birth. Why do we need to be born again? I think I've said that, but I want to make sure everyone understands it. Why do we need to be born again, church? We were what? D-E-A-D. Dead. Dead in sin. Sin that alienates. Sin which separates us from God. Sin which makes us enemies of God. Sin which causes the wrath of God to bite upon us. Sin which sends us to hell. And I know in the day and time we live in, saying that people go to hell is not politically correct, but I've read my Bible and I don't have to be politically correct. I tell the truth with grace and point people to the need for Christ in their life. Notice in verse 18 that this new birth is not something that we prompted God to do. Notice what it says there. Of His own will... He brought us forth. Some of your translations read, He chose to give us birth or by His own choice. God's will, His choice, was not prompted by anything good within us. He didn't look at us and go, Oh, Addie, she's a good old girl. I think because of that, I'll make her mine. Salvation is a result of God's sovereign will. It's the only way life could be given to those who are dead. Listen to John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, that's talking about hearing the gospel, believing the gospel, repenting and trusting in Christ, all who believed in His name, listen to what it says, He gave the right to become children of God. Who gave the right for us to become children of God? God did. Verse 13 says, Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It was all of God. The only way a spiritually dead person, and by the way, all of us as unbelievers are born in this state, dead, separated from God. The only way a spiritually dead person can have spiritual life, new birth, is to receive a gift from God through faith in Christ. And it's God who brings that gift to us. It's of God's will that you and I come to faith in Christ. Now, let me explain. You ever have one of those moments when you know what you want to say, but it, it's hard to get it from here out there? I, I contemplate this in my mind constantly. That I was dead in my sin, headed my way, cared nothing about God, hated God, was an enemy of God, But God in His grace let me hear the gospel of His own sovereign will. He came to me and opened my eyes to hear the gospel. And He gave me faith to believe and repent and trust in Him. And when that thought, church, grabs hold of us, you know what it will produce in us? It will produce worship. When we come to realize that our salvation is totally of God, it's not dependent upon anything we do, we'll come to worship God in a way that the Bible calls us to. You ever wonder why Christians, we go through life the way we do, or why we show up on Sundays and just sometimes nonchalantly go through the motions of worship? You know why we do that? It's because we've yet to see the sovereign, saving grace of God. 
I, this happens to me sometimes. I forget just how precious the gospel is. How precious it is that God in His grace would come to me in my deadness and take away my blindness and give me faith to repent and believe in Christ. Until we realize that God in His grace came to us and done that for us. Until we realize that God in His grace broke our old hard, hard hearts of stone and showed us our condition and gave us faith to repent and believe. Until we realize that, we'll never worship God in the way He deserves to be worshipped. It will not happen until we realize that. When that understanding gets a hold of us, we will change the way we live and the way we come together as a church. When we come to understand what God has done for us out of His own will, not of anything that we've done, God came to us and He opened our eyes and saved us. When we come to realize that, we will live our lives in a different way. And we'll come together differently as a church for worship. How are we born again? Notice the means of this new birth. By the word of truth. Believers are born again, regenerated by the power of God's word. The word which contains the gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ. If this word is not proclaimed, no one can hear and no one can be saved. 1 Peter 1.23 says, You have been born again, and notice what he says, through the living and abiding word of of God. The way God causes a new birth is by His Word. The Gospel, the Holy Spirit carries the Word into our dead hearts and causes us to see the truth of Christ as we've never seen it before. And we're given life through the Word of truth, the Word of God, the Gospel. <coughs> Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. One of the most precious verses in the Bible. Notice I said precious, I didn't say most important. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in the hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God said, let light shine out of darkness. And He allowed that light to shine in our hearts, giving us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 10 verse 17 says that faith comes by hearing, and hearing through what church? The Word of God. You want to know why we give money to missions and why we give money to people who to plant churches in South Africa so they will take this word and proclaim it that people will hear and be saved. But the ability to hear and the ability to obey came as a result of this church. God said, let light shine out of darkness. Because of God's gracious will, dead men are brought to life. I was sitting in my study this week and I kept thinking about this. You know what old song came to my mind? I saw the light. No more in darkness. No more in night. One day God, in His grace, He came to me, dead in my sin, blind, and didn't care anything about Him. In His grace, He opened my eyes and shone the light of Christ in my heart through His Word. Why did God give new birth? Salvation is the greatest blessing a human being can ever receive. But its primary purpose, and we're going to look at, is not to benefit us. You're going, well, wait a minute. I thought it kept us from dying and going to hell. It does. It's, that's, that's a benefit for us, but it's not the primary purpose. It's to benefit us. Its primary purpose is to fulfill God's sovereign purpose. Look at verse 18. That we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. That, here's the purpose for that, that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. 
during harvest time, in, in biblical times, the first fruit of the harvest was always offered to who? They offered it to God. The first fruits were considered sacred. They were set apart for God. The word we there refers to the believer. And for us in our text, we need to read this carefully and, and stay with me. In our text, James is referring to the believers at, that he wrote this letter to initially. That's who we is. Okay? Now, you're going, what about us? Creatures refers to people, all who will be saved down through the history of time. Which really makes you the we when you sit and read this. God, in the Old Testament, made a promise. He made a covenant to take a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation and make a people for Himself and to set them apart to be His people. Those who have heard the gospel and turned from sin and trusted in Jesus are set apart as God's special people. We're set apart as God's special people so that we will live lives that are holy. So that we may please, not ourselves, but so that we will live holy lives and please God. That's why God saves us. Yes, it keeps us out of hell, but God saves us for one thing. The glory of His name. Who else can take dead people and make them alive and put them in a position to live holy lives? Only God can do that. And that's why He does that. Look with me at verses 19 through 20. Here we see the hearing of the Word. The hearing... Of the word. He says, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Why? For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. First James says, Know this, my beloved brothers. This tells us that he is, once again, talking to believers, his brothers in Christ. And second, he's trying to focus their attention on something very important. Know this. Pay attention, my brothers. Listen to me. Know this, my beloved brothers, because you have been brought forth by the word of truth. Verse 18, because you have experienced the new birth. Know this, verse 18, know this, because you have heard the gospel and God in His grace has brought you forth, redeemed you. He says, notice what He says, every person. How many persons, church? Every person. Every believer What's the next two words? Must be. Now, if you're like me, sometimes you don't like people to say, you should do this, or you must do that, or you need to do this, or you... Sometimes that can rub me the wrong way. But we can't do that with the Word of God. Notice it says, every person must be what? Quick to hear. Slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So to make sure I've made myself clear, how many believers is the Spirit of God talking to here through James? Every believer. Is there an option for us? We must be. James makes it clear that true Christianity, genuine faith, permeates our, listen, our relationships. Our behavior It permeates everything in our life. James says that those who have genuine faith demonstrate godliness in all of life and particularly how they relate to others. Every person must be. James is speaking to every believer. Every person, every believer must be. Now I know for us, listening can be difficult, right? 
But listening is a relational action. Speaking is a relational action. Anger is a relational response, an emotional response that comes up in the context of relationships. Isn't it interesting in determining the genuineness of someone's claim to have faith, to be a Christian, James goes immediately to some of those practical issues of Christian behavior. What's the main idea of the theme of the book of James? The test of our faith. Every believer must be what? Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Quick to hear. Notice what it says there. James says, and I struggle here. I'm admitting my sin. Every believer must be quick to hear. We must be good listeners. Are you a bad listener? I'll say it again. Are you a bad listener? Some of you will figure that out in just a second. Uh, a bad listener is the person who's distracted. And you're going, oh, I get it now. Um, they have so much going on in their mind that they're not listening. Uh, I think for this practical area, James is also pointing to the idea of being careful listeners. Sometimes we don't listen, and sometimes we don't listen carefully. Paying attention in order to get the message right. Listen before you make rash statements. Right? Y- y'all have heard this. My dad told me this when I was little. you got two ears and one mouth for a reason. Have any of y'all ever heard that? Sometimes bad listeners hear, but they don't like what they hear. It might be true, but they don't like it. Some of you have gotten information. You have gotten truth. Maybe you've even gotten God's Word, and you just don't listen to it. Be quick to hear. Be slow to speak. Refers to a mouth that's under control. And you're like, "Uh uh-oh. It's also a companion of the first thing mentioned, is it not? You can't listen carefully while you're talking, even while you're thinking about what you're going to say. You ever been that? Been talking to somebody, and you're trying to think, I'm formulating my answer, and I hear nothing they're saying. Imagine the uselessness of a conversation... When all involved are paying more attention to what they want to say than what others are saying. And that would be some more of a conversation to be in, would it not? But the idea here is not that we never speak. Don't misunderstand me, but we speak with careful thought and concern. What we say should be carefully thought out. Some of you have been in conversations with me and I've been talking and I'll stop. And you're thinking, is he okay? And I respond, I'm choosing my words carefully. I used to be one of those kind, if it came to mind, it came out. And that's never good. I don't care who you are. Slow to anger. Now, I'm anticipating your questions. Slow to anger. Some of you might say, hey, God gets angry. He does, doesn't he? I anticipate your question. Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. It says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious and... Does anybody know what the next three words are? Slow to anger. And abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The Lord is what to anger church? Slow. It doesn't say that He never gets angry, but His anger is what? Slow. God is steadfast and merciful. Some, some, Some of you are angry people. Again, as my daddy used to say, some of you, some people have the 
disposition of partly cloudy with thunderstorms on the horizon. <laughs> you ever been around somebody like that? Some of you are on the offensive all the time. The people who are around you are always on guard. They, they feel like they're in a room with somebody with a hand grenade and the pen's been pulled. <coughs> Got to walk on eggshells. And that hand grenade, the pen's been pulled. The slightest bump and what's going to happen? Boom. What does James say to those who have a short fuse? We need to be learned to be slow to anger. Notice in verse 20, what else James says about anger. Every person must be slow to anger. Why? Here's why. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Outbursts of anger don't produce God's righteousness. In other words, anger does not accomplish what is right in God's eyes. Now there is a righteous anger. When we see people being abused, things happening, we ought to be angry with a righteous anger in the way that God gets angry at sin. Righteousness here, though, however, refers to God's standard of right living. When the professing believer allows anger to control him, when the professing believer spews out emotional garbage, as I would call it, on his fellow believers, this falls short of what God designed our relationships to be within the church. Why anger? As I was studying this week, I said, why did James pick anger? Of all the things he could have picked, why did he pick this? I think it's because this one speaks to many of us. Our inappropriate anger demonstrates a heart condition that is opposite of God's righteous plan for His people. His plan is to transform us by grace and anger which is out of control is a sign. Listen, it's a sign that something's deeply wrong within our hearts. And this is a test for what? Our faith. In the Christian life, the evidence of a new birth is a, is a new life. Our speech ought to evidence a new life. Our listening ought to evidence a new life. And our control of our emotions should reflect a new life. Now, I'm not naive. We're going to get angry from time to time, right? And we're going to have to back up and ask for forgiveness. We're going to say things, but it shouldn't be the pattern of our lives. Notice what the word is. Slow to anger. Look at verse 21. And here James tells us to receive the word. To receive the word. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Notice here how he begins. Therefore. Therefore indicates for us that what James is about to say is directly related to what he's just said in verses 19 and 20. James is saying here, verse 21, based on the need to live up to God's standard of being self-controlled in our interactions with one another, here is what you need to do. Notice first he says, you need to put away. Some of your translations read, lay aside or get rid of. The word has the idea of removing clothing and is applied figuratively to the stripping off of the pre-Christian life from the believer. This word is figurative for like getting rid of dirty clothing. To the Christian, James says, take off, get rid of, put aside all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Filthiness. When I say filthy, what, what comes to mind? Something's extremely dirty, right? 
It's used figuratively by James to refer to bad behavior. What has he just got through talking about? James uses a word that helps us understand that just how vile sin is. We're to put off bad behavior, verses 19 and 20, just like we would filthy clothing. No one wants to constantly go around wearing filthy clothing, do you? It's the same with sin. Put it off. Get rid of it. Notice the next thing, rampant wickedness. Rampant refers to an abundance of something. Here it's wickedness. Wickedness pertains to sin that is deliberate and determined. That's what that word means. You deliberately determine. He says, put that off. James says to the believer that putting off sin, get rid of sin, involves a fight. It involves a battle. It comes from a foe that takes many different forms. Sin attacks us persistently in many ways. And if you're like me, you kill one sin, and what happens? Something else pops. How many of you ever been to the carnival and put that little uh, mallet thing and those heads pop up in them holes and you're trying to... That's what I think I'm doing sometimes. You may be saying, that's exactly what happens in my life. Well, guess what? You're in the boat with the rest of us. You're sitting here and you sigh at the thought of the battle you have on your hands. There's some days I think... My goodness, what is going on? But James doesn't leave us to feel as if that battle is lost. Look at verse 21 again. He says, And receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. James is telling the believer who fights the battle with sin, and by the way, we all fight that battle. James is telling the believer that the word of God is the means of grace for sanctifying you against sin. Sanctification is what, church? It's putting away sin... And becoming more like Jesus. That's not original to me. I asked a small child one time what sanctification was. And he looked at me and said, It's putting away sin and becoming more like Jesus. And I thought, Good grace, I went to seminary for four years and I got a five year old. Tell me what sanctification is. All that money and that time study to take them tests. And here I have a five year old telling me what sanctification is. Remember, we're talking about the evidence of genuine faith here. Notice James says the, the word is implanted. Implanted has the idea of what, what do you think that means? Putting seed in the ground. Some of you guys, will, you, you'll understand this. The idea is that God's word at the time of salvation, verse 18, was what? Planted. It took root in your heart. It brought you forth to new life. The evidence of genuine salvation, genuine faith. The Word does not come and it does not leave. When it creates new birth salvation, it abides within us. So the Word of God is implanted in us and it's in work in us. When God saved you and brought you forth, He implanted His Word within you. So notice what James says. He says, receive God's Word. Receive means to allow the Word of God to direct and control your life. That's what he's talking about. With meekness has the idea of teachability, a readiness to submit. The opposite of receiving the Word with meekness would be to receive it in part because, you know, you want the right to reserve, to to pick and choose, right? I like that. I'll take this. No thank you. I don't want that. James says, receive the implanted word. It's already in us, Christian, and you should receive it. It's rooted and planted in you. It brought you salvation. It's there sustaining the new life. It's there feeding your faith. 
Do you hear what I said? It's there doing what? Feeding your faith. Notice that James adds, and we'll finish here and I'll give you application. James adds at the end of the verse, which is able to save your souls. Some of you are going, I got that on the front end. But he's also talking about the perseverance of your soul to the end. The Word of God is able to save you, but the Word of God is also able to what? Save your souls and persevere you to the end. That when you stand before God, you stand before Him genuine in your faith. The implanted Word which we receive is able to save our souls and keep us, sanctify us, take us to that day righteous, standing before God, blameless and without reproach. Now I have a question to you. Do you think the Word of God is vitally important to the life of a Christian? James says, hear it, and then he says, receive it. Let me give you some practical application here. Sitting under the reading of the Word of God, or sitting under the proclamation of the Word, is not merely intended to tickle your ears, or to give you information. It's designed to transform you. To transform you by God's grace. Here's where most of us are, myself included sometimes. We're passive listeners. We come to Sunday school, we come to corporate worship gathering here today, and we sit back to be spectators when it comes to the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God. Can I tell you something as nice as I know how? When the Word of God is opened, a believer should be anxious and waiting to receive what God's Word has for him. We shouldn't be passive, sitting back, and just sort of hanging out. Do you understand what God has given us? He's given His, his mind, His Word, and we have this when some, someone opens it to read it, to, to teach it. We should become anxious. I'm about to hear the Word of God. Do you hear God's Word as a spectator? Do you think, you know, if that preacher was only a little bit taller, or if he didn't wear them funny-looking glasses... I might pay more attention. I, I would listen a little bit closer. Can I, can I tell you, when I was in seminary, I had a class one time. I totally despised that class. I could. Y'all know what Altoids are? Breath mints, you know how strong they are? I ate about eight cans of those in that one semester trying to stay awake in that class. It was, it was that bad. Now, that was my opinion of it. But God convicted me one day. You're sitting in a class with someone who's trying to teach you. And you don't want to receive what I have for you. Man, you're talking about class being different the next time I only had that. And from that point on, every time the Word of God was opened. Or when you come to hear the Word of God, do you come as a spiritually starving believer? Hungry to be fed God's Word. To be fed with His grace. To be fed with the truth of the Word so that your life will be transformed. That's why we come, to worship together, to hear God's Word preached, so that it transforms us. Do you come realizing that you need this as a means of grace that will allow you to walk faithfully in your life as a Christian? Do you come hungry for spiritual nourishment and looking for sanctification? Or are you worried that it's 12.03? How about Monday through Saturday? 
When it says in verse 21, receive the implanted word, I think there's an implication that the gospel remains the center of the word that we receive and we're to receive it every day. It is the gospel, the central message that Christ died for our sins and rose again. It's this gospel that takes root in our lives when we're born again. James says that gospel God has implanted in you and you need to receive it every single day. You never outgrow your need for the good news of the gospel. You never outgrow your need to hear the good news of forgiveness of sin and righteousness that comes to you through Christ and eternal life. You never reach a point where the word of God is not necessary anymore. I think James is implying that the word that saved us and is implanted in us is something that we need to go on receiving every single day of our lives. And here's the exhortation. Looking at these verses, as I look at these, every day, James is saying, with meekness, receive the Word of God. That is, every day... Now, I'm going to be careful, and I don't want to be legalistic here. Every day, where I have opportunity, and we have opportunity, whether we realize it or not, as a believer, this Word is implanted in me, and every day I should seek to receive it. Every day. I should have a desire and a hunger for this Word which is implanted in me. Remember, it gives evidence of what? Genuine, saving faith. And again, lovingly, I want to say this. If you can go days and weeks without spending time with God, you may want to examine your faith. I'm not judging people. I just find it hard to believe that someone can profess to be a believer... And they go weeks and months, days, and they never open this and allow God to feed their soul. I'm not talking about missing a day or two here and there. Here's your pastor. Things happen unexpectedly. I have a schedule. I have a routine of reading and praying every day, but things happen, and guess what? Some mornings before it gets daylight or just something happens and i got to go, you got to go do this. Someone goes to the hospital. So. I may miss that day. But I'm talking about the lack of desire for this Word. A lack of desire for the very thing that feeds your soul. The means by which God uses to grow your faith. Let me read you Psalm chapter 1. Most of you are familiar with Psalm chapter 1 verses 1 through 3. Notice what God says here. Blessed is the man... We understand what blessed is, right? Happy. Good. Other adjectives you want to throw in there. Blessed is what? The man. Not just men, but mankind. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. On his law, he meditates. Does anybody know what it says? Day and night. Now, listen. It doesn't mean you're constantly reading the Bible. You never go to sleep. You're meditating on it day and night. It it means you're in the Word and that Word directs your life. Notice what it says about that person. He's like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit. What causes fruit to be yielded in our lives as a believer? The Word of God. And it says, And its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. 
That's the effect of the Word of God upon your spiritual life. It causes you to be like a tree planted by the streams of water and you produce fruit in your life. Let me finish this way. Practical, talking about application. Reading the Word of God will not just happen. Reading the Word of God will not just happen. You need to be disciplined and have an established time of reading the Word of God and pray. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands if you got that, but here's what I'm telling you. If you don't make time and set it aside, it never comes, right? And I'm, I'm anticipating your question. I just don't have time. You know, some of you heard me say this. My daddy, the great philosopher, said we make time for the things that we want to make time for. If you don't sit down and establish a time every day, this time of day I'm going to read and I'm going to feed my soul and I'm going to pray, guess what? It will never, ever happen. The Word of God doesn't happen by osmosis. You can't walk by and it's just going to float out of there and get into your life. You've got to sit down and read it. You need to establish a set time and place. And let me encourage you, past, uh, you parents this morning, you better start early with your children. Reading the Word of God with them. And being an example to them of what it means to have a daily time of hearing and receiving God's Word. Some of you heard me give this example before. One of the greatest examples I have of this is my, my own dad. My dad had a ninth grade education. He couldn't read and write really well, but he, he, he did well enough to get by. Some of you heard me say this. Every morning, I could go by the kitchen, and there was a box of cornflakes, a bowl, spoon, and milk. And you know what else was there? A big old humongous giant print Bible because he couldn't see it. He read every morning for an hour before he went to work. My daddy by no means was a theologian, or is a theologian. But what he instilled in me is, the Word of God must be important to get up and read it an hour before I go to work, it must be valuable to my soul. It must be valuable to my life. Let me encourage you today that this is not something that we should take for granted. God has revealed His mind to us. He's revealed Himself to us. He's revealed His salvation to us in this Word. Evidence, testing of the faith, is those who hear the Word and receive the Word. Let's pray.